0: This is DGMT's Learning Lunch, and I'm your host, Rahima Esop. On today's Nourish and Flourish conversation, we are talking about the concept of community ownership. Now, when civil society organizations refer to community ownership, they are advocating for a concept where communities have a significant degree of control, influence and benefit from projects, initiatives or resources that directly affect them. Some key aspects of community ownership include decision-making power, control over the planning, management and operation of projects or resources, building capacity within communities so that they can manage projects well into the future, and lastly, deriving tangible benefits from projects. Now, my guest, Sinazo Nquello, has spent years thinking about this topic. She heads the Place-Based Synergies portfolio at DGMT, which... In a Nutshell is about bringing a series of human development projects together in a single geographic location over a long funding period. The flagship projects that she has poured her heart and her soul into are the Lisedi Solar Park Trust and Litsatsi Solar Park Trust, which we'll simply refer to as Lisedi and Litsatsi throughout this conversation. Both are community development trusts established in line with the renewable energy independent power producer procurement program. It's quite a mouthful, so we'll just refer to it as REAP. Welcome Sinazo, it's so nice to have you. I've been waiting a long time to get you in this chair. Thank you for
1: having me Rahima, I'm excited to be here.
0: Sinazo, as a starting point for today's conversation, it would be useful to give our listeners a brief overview of the REAP program, which as I mentioned in my introduction is the Renewable Energy Independent Power Producer Procurement Program. And without getting stuck into the technical detail of REAP, because it's simply a segue into our discussion and not the focus of it, just briefly tell us what it's all about.
1: Sure. So The REAP program is aimed at, firstly, bringing additional megawatts onto the country's electricity system through private sector investment in renewable energy, so like wind and solar. And then secondly, addressing the challenge of climate change by transitioning away from emission-intensive energy sources like coal. Now, the second part is particularly important for our conversation The coal value chain plays a critical role in South Africa's economy, enabling industrial activity in a number of sectors, electricity being one, chemical productions being another, and there's more. It accounts for roughly 5% of the national GDP and directly employs an estimated 200,000 people. This obviously means that a transition from coal would not be without its cost, right? So to ensure that the net effect of this transition is positive... The government had to embed in its policy framework conditions aimed at ensuring that the transition was just, as in it didn't exacerbate the country's existing challenges of inequality, poverty and unemployment. So when government started procuring electricity from large-scale renewable energy players in 2011, it tasked them to contribute towards local community development. So one of the conditions set was that they develop the communities that are within a 50 kilometre radius of wherever they set up their power plants. So these communities would need to benefit in terms of socioeconomic and enterprise development type investments, so investments in SMMEs and local economic development, as well as job creation and then local ownership. This local ownership piece has a few layers to it, but one of them is community ownership. And this is where the power plants have to allocate shareholding to communities. And then typically, community trusts are set up as vehicles for stewarding this community ownership.
0: Thanks, Sanazo. So for the benefit of our listeners, I'm going to quickly just summarize what you've just said. REAP is about increasing our power generation capacity as a country. It's about disrupting our reliance on fossil fuels, and it's about facilitating the just transition. Now, in addition to what you've just said, community development is a requirement for companies participating in REAP. Uh, Those who benefit are within a 50-kilometer radius of the project site, and companies tend to channel investments through a community trust, as you've explained. And the intention of policymakers in designing REAP is to ensure that impoverished and marginalized communities are not left behind in the transition away from emission-intensive energy sources like coal. What does community ownership mean to you, Sinazo, as the custodian of TGMT's place-based synergy work?
1: Community ownership is a very nuanced term. A lot of what it means for us or how we've come to understand it is what we've learned from communities about what it means for them. So we're still on a journey of understanding, particularly in terms of how to land this concept practically. But our current understanding is that community ownership is the endorsement, meaningful participation and leadership by community members of development processes that results from community members having been, one, meaningfully engaged in development processes and to the benefits of community shareholding largely flowing, or if not wholly flowing, to community members. So I know that's a mouthful, but in essence, it is the result of meaningful engagement, by which we mean development happens with communities and not to them. So it requires something more than ticking a box of communicating with communities. And then secondly, it's the result of benefits actually flowing to communities. And its expression is community endorsement and community leadership of development
0: processes. That's a very important point, Sanazo, not ticking a box. How best can we realize the potential of community ownership through the community trust model?
1: Meaningful engagement is a method and it's a strategy. It's how practitioners build relationships, build trust, and create space for community members to participate. But here's what our experience has taught us. Communities don't just want to be informed about the development work. This approach has its place, but it's the least meaningful way to engage community members in development processes. In this approach, you're effectively making the decisions, shaping the work, and then coming back to communities and telling them what you just did. So you're not necessarily inviting their agency, their knowledge, their resource, their capacity, their leadership into the process We've learned that it's more meaningful to consult community members, to create spaces for their input, to shape the decisions that are actually made. We've learned that community members want to be involved as co-creators and engaged as leaders and implementers of development services and programs. So for us, creating spaces and opportunities for this type of engagement is really important. But more importantly, we've learned that you'll miss the mark if you think of this purely in terms of a method or a strategy. Getting this right requires something deeper of us as development practitioners or facilitators of community ownership. It requires us to check our values and beliefs. What does the way we decide say about who we see as a community member? Whose voice matters? Where does legitimate knowledge actually come from? Because the quality of the space we create for community participation, how we employ whatever method we employ, is ultimately a reflection of who we are willing to see, who we're willing to listen to, to understand, to back to deliver the work, who we are willing to partner with. And ultimately, I think that this is what it hinges on. So these are things that I think community trusts
0: really need to be able to grapple with. Do they have guidelines or playbook, to use that term, on how to do the work of community trusts? There isn't any prescription
1: to community trusts about the development strategies they need to employ, about what their organisational structures need to look like, about how many board members they need to have or not have, uh, about then operational practices that deliver whatever strategy they choose for example, how they should do community engagement. That is not prescribed legally or by any institution like the IPP office. So coming into this role, we had to define it, what does it look like for us in the city and the Tati? And that's something we are building as we go. Some community trusts are managed by third-party either development organizations or consultancies that have over the years gotten some experience and have then developed their own practice documents and guidelines. And so some community trusts are further ahead in terms of uh, having this kind of institutional capacity and institutional knowledge on how to do community engagement. But that's not the case for all community trusts, nor is there any... uh, organization whose focus it is to ensure that that is the case and that not every practitioner is entering into these community trusts and having to build ground up. But there is no body or organization whose role it is to enable community trusts, to drive community engagement effectively, or to have the practice guidance, whatever it is, so that they're not all learning and building ground up and making repeating mistakes that could have actually been avoided.
0: Sinazo, has there ever been an imbizo for members of community trust to come together to share their learnings, um, those that are well-established and have um, uh, uh, ways of working and protocols and guidelines in place with those that are new? Has, is that something that the sector is thinking about? I would say that certainly that is something that the ser- sector is
1: thinking about. I think that it is something that in practice is not always easy to get up and running. The reality is that coordination and collaboration is not easy to get right because you kind of need a dedicated capacity to do that. People often struggle to hold their core mandate, which is often fund management or strategy, with a mandate around convening and coordinating. The great thing is that there is the Institute for Social Performance in Renewable Energy, INSPIRE, which is an NGO that was created by the sector um, as a response to this question of how do we convene and create opportunities for peer-to-peer learning, but also bringing in best practice wherever it exists in service to helping trusts and other practitioners in this space to deliver the work well, so there's definitely an emerging uh, capacity in the sector to support the sector in these ways, and there's definitely I think an interest from community trusts and others to be more coordinated and more and to work more collaboratively. But I think the reality is is that it is quite hard for those in these trusts to hold both their strategies and a mandate around convening others.
0: Sinazo, let's get specific now and talk about Lissedi and Litsatsi as case studies. That's where your team is currently working. We know that access to information is really important for participation, decision-making, and accountability. You mentioned earlier that community members want to know where and how the funds are flowing. What are some of the ways in which your team is driving public awareness in Lisseti and Litsatsi?
1: Communications efforts in a community development context need to be quite grounded, especially in rural contexts where the high cost of data means that people don't always have access to information via digital platforms. So while we have social media pages and website, what we found to be more effective is some of our more grounded and relational approaches to communications. So these have been particularly important in our early years where our brand was not necessarily understood or known by the community. So some of the things that we've done that have been really helpful is to have community-based communications and program staff. These are individuals who are born and raised in these communities. They join our team because they want to see change for the better in their communities. They know people, they know the local landscape very well. And these these team members will hold relationships with local media, with local stakeholders like our mayors, the ward councillors, school principals and various other constituencies that we have to interact with in our strategy. They'll engage these stakeholders one-on-one, bringing awareness, making sure that they're involved in All our decision-making processes, right from when we are planning and thinking about what our priorities are, right through to implementation and reflecting on impact. We're also about to set up an information desk where community members can learn about programs we are supporting and be connected to those opportunities. So these are very practical things in communities that matter.
0: So is this like a physical information kiosk?
1: Yes, I think it's important that community members know where they can go to access resources and information, and that there be some consistency and predictability around that. So, with our communications intern, for example, in our communities, um, and the office space that office spaces we are um, securing in these communities, we would want to set up a once a week or once a month communities know that they can come and get information about all the programs that we are invested in, where there's job opportunities in the programs, where there's services that might be relevant to their, for their children, and actually be connected to those who are implementing those programs and to those services.
0: Interesting. That sounds like a great idea. The
1: second thing about how we uh, create awareness of our work is really finding ways to engage community members throughout our development processes. So one of the things we've set up is advisory committees, community members who volunteer their passion, their expertise, their knowledge, to guide us on what we should prioritise, et cetera. And we use these advisory committees, or work with, rather, these advisory committees um, to prioritise, to plan, to oversee implementation, provide them with feedback, etc. And I think they become a very important way in which we create awareness of the work that we are doing. Mm-hmm. Lastly, a lot of the work that we do is delivered by NGOs, other organizations. And so it's really important to us that we enable them to drive awareness of the work that they are doing. Mm-hmm. So in our funding agreements, we create provision for their own communications and marketing efforts. But then our own comms teams will also work closely with theirs to make sure that there is some kind of cohesiveness in the messaging and in the work and that there is alignment. It's not just the NGOs' work. It's also that there's a clear link with the trust itself. Those are some of the tactics we employ, I guess, to create community awareness.
0: So community members are able to access information, whether they'd be going to a physical kiosk or learning about what's happening in their communities through NGOs or from your team members. They also see the projects being implemented. Uh, They are participating in the form of advisory committees. What has been the response in some of these communities then?
1: Yeah, I think the response has generally been very positive, especially where community members can actually see the impact. They see local leadership and local participation and the delivery of work, and they see community members being empowered in the process. We've also had some negative responses, and we've learned a lot from some of that. This is particularly the case where a development process is perceived to be quite extractive. An example of this is when we commission research, which is often where we would start, right, to get baseline assessments, to understand the situation on the ground, to really frame the need and understand the root cause of a particular problem, both to be able to identify what the most appropriate solution actually is, but also to have the data that we can later compare to understand what change we've actually affected when we have intervened. So there's value in this research, but oftentimes what we learned is that the research is done community members are not involved in that process, and then nothing ever comes of it. So that has obviously eroded trust. It, it That's a very extractive process. So we've learned how to use that phase of the work and drive that phase of the work in a way that isn't extractive. So we will make sure that we train locals as field workers, especially where a local research capacity doesn't exist, like there isn't an organisation that has a team that can we can directly work with. So we'll at the very least, make sure that they are the field workers in the process are from the communities and they are trained. That's one way. The second way that we uh, make sure this pr- these processes aren't extractive is that we're intentional about building in moments and opportunities to provide feedback and gain input from community members in the process. So right up front, we will make sure that communities understand what it is that's gonna be done, why it's being done, who's going to be involved, how they can shape whatever the research questions are, who else we need to engage, et cetera, and that there's feedback, right? Once the results come up, we go back to communities, we share them with them, we say, does this reflect something true about your lived experience? Is this accurate? And quite importantly, we're quite intentional about building into our process flexibility to identify low-hanging fruits. So as the research is being done already some of the researchers will already spot opportunities for us to intervene, to back an intervention. And so we will create room to be able to fund some of those low-hanging fruits even before the research is completed.
0: So research is commissioned, a need is identified, a solution is identified, and a project is implemented in a community. What are you doing to ensure the continuity of these projects in the communities in which you work? Yeah,
1: I'd like to reflect on three things here. The first is, for us, community ownership is critical to our understanding of what sustainability is. If we have community organisations, community members and leaders leading development effectively, driving change effectively, that to us is critical to sustainability and continuity because if we have community members and organisations effectively driving development in their communities, even long after we are gone, they will have the capacity, the knowledge, the resourcefulness to get other funding to ensure the sustainability of the work that we helped to either catalyze or to sustain or maintain in a given period of time. So this idea of community ownership is critical. Secondly, I think there's certainly a financial angle to this idea of continuity. Our communities have a 70% youth unemployment rate. These are young people who will become or already are parents who cannot afford to pay ECD fees, for example. This means that our programs in ECD will always be highly grant funded or subsidized. So unless we stimulate the local economy, unless we create jobs for these people, sustainability in the sense of fee payments and a level of social enterprising or commercial sustainability is not going to be an, is not going to be an option for our communities. So we actively find ways to reduce financial leakage in our investments. One, and that's where that's one way that I guess we stimulate the local economy, right? An example of this is if we've got a development program that procures T-shirts from Johannesburg, for example, and then we have an SMME that we are investing in that could pivot slightly to be able to manufacture T-shirts, that is one way that we can sort of reduce the leakage of our procurement at least and spend and make sure that it, it circulates locally, right? So we find ways to connect the dots in those ways. We invest in SMMEs, obviously, and we're looking to find new labor-absorptive uh, industries to unlock in these communities. We see our programmatic investments as employment opportunities. In Lisedi, we've got over 170 people working in our development programs, be it you know, uh, early childhood development um, programs to career development, youth development programs. Lastly, we are exploring the viability of creating an endowment where we would allocate a portion of our dividend income into some investment vehicle um, that then grows over time. And that would be one way that we create financial sustainability for the Trust.
0: Thanks, Anazo. This is a nourish and flourish conversation, which means that we approach a topic with openness. We reflect. We think deeply about a subject. But I feel like there is an elephant in the room that we have not addressed. People politics, leadership politics, and the politics of working with local government. And I want you to perhaps reflect on that very briefly on how that impacts the realization of community ownership as you envision it.
1: I mean, I think that in any space where you are dealing with money, and particularly dealing with money in a context where there has been a lot of deprivation, you'll always have those who want to get the most out of it for themselves. And that's something we have to manage. I think that it's very important for us to have a team that is highly ethical, because we are constantly negotiating with power and interest. And it's our values ultimately that create guardrails and boundaries. And we have to trust that those values are applied confidently by the teams that go out in field and interact with various stakeholders whose intentions won't always be for development. So values of the team is really important. That's one thing. But even values need to be reinforced through controls in an organization right and I think the great thing about our operation has been that we are supported by DG Murray Trust which has very uh, strong grant making processes systems and controls clear governance of how decisions are made and That has really enabled us to not only espouse certain values around ethics, but to actually have the practices that reinforce them too.
0: I think that was succinctly put. As we round off this conversation now, Sanazo, I'd like to know what sort of advice, and I use that word loosely, you can give civil society organizations who are listening to this podcast who may want to give meaning to the notion of community ownership in their own work, especially those that are not directly involved in the REAP program?
1: The first is enable local drive and initiative. Empower locals to be the ones who are driving community development or to be part of, in a meaningful way, delivery of programs. Secondly, embrace continuous co-creation and collaboration. And this is about acknowledging that local knowledge does not only come from experts from outside. You have to find a way in your processes of appreciating community input and participation. Lastly, embrace a long-term and developmental approach to the work. I'm yet to enter a community that doesn't have its own changemakers. But what often is the case is that no one's invested in building their organisations, their operational processes and systems, Mm. and then they often are overlooked. Or we bring in short-term solutions, like we buy the equipment or we do that once-off training. Mm. That's not enough to set communities up to lead development. You have to take a long-term approach, a very developmental approach, one that recognises that... Once sort of training and governance doesn't necessarily immediately trickle down to improved governance on the ground in practice. Sinazo,
0: so I think that was very useful to outline those three principles to summarize this conversation. the concept of community ownership aligns with the broader goal of promoting social equity, local empowerment, and sustainable development. It recognizes that communities are not passive recipients, but active agents who can contribute to and shape their own futures. And that's very important. And now over to you, those listening to this podcast. Using what you have heard today, you can try this reflective exercise at home. You'll need a pen and paper to write down these steps or download the takeaway sheet from our website, learninglunch.com. Write down the following questions and spend some time reflecting on them by yourself and share your reflections with your colleagues. Question number one. Start by thinking about a community project that you are currently involved in. What would it take for local residents to be the driving force? Question number two. Here I want you to compare two projects. Compare a project where you led a once-off intervention to another project where you led a long-term campaign or interventions. What were the differences in outcomes? Question number three. Think about the different ways in which you can incorporate co-creation and adaptation in conceptualizing and implementing a community project. This was DGMT's Learning Lunch. Until next time.